0: Let's read from the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Then we'll remain standing for a word of prayer. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary in while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we are thankful, so thankful, Lord, that we can read your word. Father, that you can give us principles to base our life on, that, Lord, that you correct us, that you instruct us. Lord, sometimes that you rebuke us. Father, even the rebukes are wonderful when they come from you. And Father, we just ask this morning that as we get into this section, Lord, that you would open it up before us, that it would penetrate into our hearts, and Lord, that it would be a living word. Father, that it would accomplish all that you would have it to accomplish, and Lord, that it might accomplish much. Send it forth with power. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We've been working our way through the book of Galatians, and we kind of ran into this section last week, and we had a very narrow application to it. We had been looking at uh, giving. If you look at verse 6, the verse that was just before it, let him who is taught in the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. And we took that into the principle of uh, sowing and reaping, uh, not some mystical faith tithing that God's going to supernaturally bless in in some way, but just the the, the putting it out to the Lord and testing him and giving it to him and letting him return a blessing as he sees fit. And this week we want to continue on with that passage, and I'd like to take it and, and just broaden it. I don't know if you look in your Bible at how it's written, mine starts a new paragraph there. I think it could be tied, that middle verse, could be tied to the the first couple of verses, one through five, could also be tied to this section, seven through ten. But this section here has a broader application than just finances. In fact, when I came home eight years ago from uh, serving as a missionary in Africa, uh, people would ask me, what do you, what, you know, what, what do you think of America? What do you see in America? What's your thoughts on America? And I can tell you honestly, my, my thought went to this verse time and time and time again, that this is a principle that America has forgot. It is a principle that the Christian church has forgot. And so it's not something I want to just rush over and say, well, we kind of looked at it and you all heard it before and you've probably memorized it as kids, so you're good. You know, God's word doesn't come to us for the purpose of uh, intellectual knowledge or tickling our fancies. It comes to us uh, with wisdom and power to be applied in our lives. And this verse in particular is one that if you look at America, we have totally forgotten this. I don't know if any of you are follow the the politics of the spending that we're doing. I mean, most of you know the debt that's occurring, and it you know the national debt, and it keeps growing up. Have you followed the theology or the the philosophy of spending? We have a we have a new philosophy of spending that is being tried, and they'll they'll talk about this on news programs if you get to it. And the idea is is that because we are the leading country on this earth, and because uh, and that's monetarily. Uh, and because of we are can print our own money, we can basically print money consequence free. Now that has been uh, derided and and said it, it has proven it doesn 't work in every society of man up until today, and yet we're trying it. We are just continuing that the money rolls off the press as fast as we can do it and the The fault of what 's behind this is here. Uh, Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. There's no such thing as as a free lunch. We used to know that. And yet it's not just in there. We don't just see it in the big policies. We see it in the little policies. We, we see it as people saying, well, you can be whatever you want to be. And if you don't want to be a boy, you want to be a girl, we're going to embrace that. Go ahead. And I'm sorry to even say that. I see some of you cringing in your seats. But do you see it? We have forgotten that there is a principle here. I remember talking to my brother one day and he asked me a question. Uh, the, uh, the pastor of his church was, uh, made a statement and they were discussing it after the service. And the statement was, does God have principles that are applicable to all men? And there was some debate about it and my brother says, of course he does. He said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you believe or you don't believe or what's going on, if you've, you know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here's another one that I think is a principle that God has laid down for all of men of all time, believing, unbelieving, and it, it happens, it works, it's, it's true from the, the center out. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption, and he that sows to the Spirit will reap everlasting life. In fact, this is exactly, uh, if you go back, I just, you're there in Galatians already, look at verse 16 of chapter five. It says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, when we were there, we were kind of focused on the, the contrast between the, the flesh, which we all have and which fights against the spirit and the spirit, which is given to those who believe, who place their trust in God and that the two of them are contrary to one another. And that as we walk in the Spirit, God enables us uh, to escape from the corruption that is in our flesh. And yet there is another word here that's very important, and that is the word walk. That, that implies a principle of life that you continue, right? You walk. It's a journey. It's not just uh, a standstill. It's not a sitting st- sitting down, resting on Sunday morning. We, we do need to come into church. We need to hear the word. But it's a, it's a walk through this life as we meet different people. That is what Paul is talking about still as he comes up into this verse seven, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he'll also reap. He's talking about this principle of how we live our lives. We're gonna reap from them. Um, and I think that's the main point of a lot of this, uh, that we are to be walking with the Lord. You you think about other verses that talk about that. You have Ephesians uh, chapter 4, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This is the idea of our whole life, is to be walked in the light of the glory of God and doing all that we can for the glory of God. This... uh, Principle here is a spiritual principle. I mean, we see it. We see it in a in a physical realm, right? If you plant corn, you, you reap corn. If you plant wheat, you reap wheat. Reap. You plant peas. Those of you who love peace, you're going to reap peace. Uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And yet, I want you to think that this is the lesser of the two. Okay, God gives us the physical principles here on this earth so that we can see and we can understand, but it's simply something that points to a greater spiritual reality. And the spiritual reality is one that in our society we have completely tried to do away with it. We have completely tried to say, well, you can, you can do what you want, you can cut corners here, you can, uh, you can uh, not live all the way for the Lord, you can have a little sin I know we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but just the, the very term itself, a white lie. You know, no lie is of the truth. He that speaks a lie speaks the language of the devil, right? It, it, there is no such thing as a white lie. And yet what do we do as men? We try to downplay our sin and we, we give it another name. We say I'm weak or I've got this a problem or this thing's going on and, and we try to give it another name. God, this principle here sits and rules over all of it. And it's just, it is a warning to us that what you plant is what you're going to sow. This is also something that in my life, I have just, I have lived with this verse. We went to Africa and for probably the first six to eight years, we saw very little fruit, very, very little fruit. Oh, you could show a Jesus film and 300 people would come and profess Christ and not one of them would come out to church. Not one of them would have a desire to read their Bible. Not one of them would, would ask, what is sin? They, they just wanted heaven. They wanted a better life. And so they were willing to say a prayer. They were willing to look to see if they can get something for nothing. But as far as following God, there was nothing there. And what do you do when you've been sent out as a missionary and the only idea of sin within their culture was you would ask a Maasai, what is sin? He said, well, that I don't steal from another Maasai and that I don't sleep with another Maasai's wife without his permission. Those were the only definition of sin. They had narrowed it to the point where there was almost nothing you could do that was outside of the bounds of what they considered sinful. Sinful. And so we started to teach, and we, we started in Genesis, and we, we did First Timothy as well, but we went through Genesis, we went through Exodus, we went through the law, we went through who was God, what does it mean to be holy, and it was years, it was years as this illiterate people who had not, no true understanding of who God was. God was, a in their culture, God is a capricious God, he's... Uh, got a female name, even though he's masculine, he's, we're not really sure where he's at. And he, he's one that you're always bartering with and bargaining with, and if anything wrong goes on, you have to offer him sacrifices to appease him. It's not the God of the Bible. It was an idol God. And so we walked through who God was for years. And finally, they started to understand how serious sin is. And then they were ready to hear about the Savior. And God granted us fruit in our ministry. And we saw a small church start, a real church with people. You ask me, what's a real church? I'll tell you what a real church is. It's when you can discipline someone in the church because they have publicly committed sin and slandered the name of Jesus and slandered their brothers and sisters in the church. And they come back and they ask for forgiveness in the front of the church and they say, I have sinned. And I need forgiveness from God and from you. See, here in America, we never even think that way. Church is a place we come and you know, we enjoy being together with friends and we want, we want all the good fellowship and we want all of this stuff. And, you know, we want all the blessings and none of the responsibility. That's why I come back and I look at this verse and I say, it's so important that we understand it. What we plant is what we're going to reap what we plant in our families is what we're going to reap in future generations. What we plant in the workplace—there's such broad application for this. I was—I think I might have mentioned it to some of you before, but this last year I heard a, a statement, and it's kind of become a—it's not a Christian verse or even a Christian principle per se, but it's a statement that that just hit me with the truth of it. It says we grossly under overestimate what we can accomplish in a day. And I don't know if any of you have ever tried to clean up your yards, you know, and you, oh, we're going to prune these trees, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. We're going to get all this done, and you get about a third of it done by the time the day's over, and, you know, you've grossly overestimated what you can accomplish. But the statement continued on. and said, and we, grossly, we even more grossly underestimate what we can accomplish over time, faithfully day by day, week by week, putting a, just a set period of time in. And it was, it was applied to a devotional of, uh, of reading God's word and just the idea of if you could read four chapters in the New Testament, do you realize that you would finish the New Testament twice or three times in a year? Do you realize that if you could learn a verse a week that within, uh, you know, and it, it gave you the number of years, you would have actually, you know, 20% of the Bible memorized? And it just continued to talk about it's not how much you do in one day, it's how consistent you are over time. And again, I look at this verse and I, I think, this is what this verse is talking about. It is not talking about all of us doing everything today and having to see the fruit. This verse is talking about what we plant. And uh, it's, it's a common theme in the Bible, Proverbs one thirty one. It says, "They shall eat." Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own ways, and they shall be filled to the f- uh, full with their own fancies. Proverbs eleven eighteen. The wicked does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. Hosea eight seven. They sow to the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stock has no bud; it will never produce meal. If it is produced, aliens will swallow it up. I mean, those are just three of them. There's others about the lazy man who who doesn't sow, and so he'll be hungry in the harvest. The Bible is full of these analogies, these parables that encourage us, look to the future, you decide how I wanna live my life. Am I living it for the Lord? And then you start to set yourself to walk that way. And it's not about all that I can do today, it's about a consistent habit of redeeming the time. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses five, uh, 15 through 17 is a verse that has always been in my heart, or has been in my heart. Let me just read it for you. Uh, going the wrong direction. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. It says, then see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So walk wisely walk with discerning, walk with your eyes open, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. See, God has called us to walk with him and to glorify him in all that we do. And the world is out there, Saying you know you can do whatever you want to do you can be entertained you can be you you can it, there's no end to it. Somebody was one of the uh, pastors or somebody I was listening to said that the the epitaph for our generation will be entertained to death. You know they're written on the gravestone when they bury it, entertained to death, and how easy that is in our day and age that we we get lost in the entertainment. I mean, it's, it's worse than it was in my parents' day. I remember as a kid growing up with television. And, you know, television came out, and boy, there were all sorts of studies on how it was changing the family. Some of you older folks maybe remember this. How many hours are people watching TV? How are your kids changing because they're spending so much time in front of the television? For our family, my dad took the TV out of our house, and he put it over at a cottage that was about, you know, a quarter of a mile away. And we would go over there to watch, and there was very set hours. You could go over there, and right after school, we could watch Tom and Jerry and another show, and we had to be home by 5. We'd get home at 3.30, quarter to 4. We'd get there at 4. We could watch from 4 to 5. And then we were home, and the rest of the night was with the family. And then somebody would get sick. The TV would come back into the house, and it would invariably start taking up more and more. And we found Little House on the Prairie was on at 6.30, and we found other good shows that were on right after that. You know, there was Ironside and there was whatever. And pretty soon it would be a part of our life. And then mom and dad would talk and they'd get up and they'd take the TV back out and they'd go back to the way it was because they didn't want to change our lives. Now that was back when it was fairly simple. Now we've got cell phones and we've got Kindles and we've got all sorts of electronic devices, computers, computers. We've got more entertainment. We've got games that you don't even have to play with a person, and yet you can play against other people online. You've got this whole industry that is entertaining us. And the question is what are you actually sowing? What are you sowing? Where are you going in your life? Now, I want to, that's kind of my start. Let me go back to this verse in verse seven. And it's just, let's look at the beginning of this. It starts out with this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And this is a principle that we must take to heart. You know, right from the beginning of Genesis, when the serpent questions Eve, has God really said you may not eat of every tree of the garden? You know, it's a, it's a leading question to doubt, cause her to doubt. And then in verses uh, four and five, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Okay, just the opposite of what God said. You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, that whole, uh, the whole work of Satan is to bring everything God has said into question. And so people doubt it. They, they, they cash dispersion on it and shame on it. Oh, you believe in that? You believe in those old-fashioned tales? Yet God starts this out. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You cannot mock God. What you plant is what you're going to reap. He would talk about this, God is a just God. He would talk about this in Hebrews 2, 2 and 3. He would say, if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, that's the old covenant under Moses and the law, if if people didn't obey it and they didn't uh, respect it, there was a punishment for it, sometimes a punishment of death. Verse three says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The new covenant, if you neglect what God did through his son on the cross in shedding his blood in your place, you, know, you notice the word there also is neglect. It's not that you deny it. It's not even that you turn away. It's just that you're not applying it. You're neglecting it. It sits there next to you. It's not a part of you. You haven't come into the family of God. You haven't decided to walk with God. Then it asks that serious question, how shall you escape if you neglect this salvation? Romans 3 also talks about this. 21 through 26, it says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed to by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God sent forth as propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, that's a long section, but it's, it's asking, it supposes a question, how can God be just if he has not punished sin that was committed in the Old Covenant, if you know, people have lived their lives and they've lived all the way to death, how can he be just? And the answer, of course, is here found in Jesus Christ, that he has offered them salvation and that there is a, there is a, a salvation in God which is available and his blood covers the sin of those that are repentant both in the Old Testament and in the New and he becomes just through Christ and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He's not only just in the punishing of sins, he is now the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ in saying your sin has been paid for. See, forgiveness is so much more uh, than just saying God forgot. God put it behind him. It's more than that. It's been paid for on the cross by the blood of Jesus. This is our just God who is accountable for every sin that ever happens that it will get a just reward, both in the Old Testament and in the New. Everyone will stand in front of God. So when he says this, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reaps. This is a serious principle to consider. This is a serious principle. Continues on in verse 8, for he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. Now that is that is something that, you know, all throughout all of chapter 5 and chapter 6, we've talked about how the flesh and the spirit are... Their intention and they 're fighting against each other, the flesh wants to go one way and the spirit the other way and Paul would end chapter seven in the book of Romans, saying, "Who will save me from this body of my flesh, this condemnation of my flesh? who will save me?" and then he would say, "Thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and he would get in in Romans eight he talks about there 's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, but the question is is who will save me from this flesh the flesh is always pulling against us he says he who sows to the flesh he who panders to his flesh you know you you think how does this apply well the more i think about it the more it applies to all of us in every situation of our lives you have a young man or a young woman who's dating i don't know if any of you have taught teen classes but well, we've talked about this, the question that they always want is, how far can I go before I'm in sin? You know, it's not how, how holy can I be, how committed to God can I be, but it's always how close to the edge can I get before I fall off, before I'm lost. And is, that is exactly what this verse is talking about. If you are going to sow to the flesh, sow to pleasing what your flesh wants, seeing how close I can get to it, Pretty soon you find yourself beyond the line you wanted and moving that line back another step and another step. And say, well, I can go here. I can do a little more. Well, it was, and then you start to justify. It's just a little sin. Can't really hurt anybody. We have it in every area of our life, though. We have it in our television habits. We have it in our computer habits. We have it in our phone habits. We have it in our reading habits not just in the material we read, but even the amount of time we spend on it. How much time do we waste? I was thinking about this this morning, and I don't know if any of you have ever gone through a a budgeting class like uh, Dave Ramsey's budgeting class. Do you remember what you do? You start out, and you make a budget, and the way you make a budget is that for a month to two months, you write down every dime, every penny of the money that goes out and that comes in, right? And you, you make a list, and then from that list, you decide what this item is for. You have needs, right? My food, and you have clothes, and you have entertainment, and you have savings, and you have bills, and all the different items that go down there. And uh, one of the challenging parts about that is, you know, you might say, well, uh, food, entertain, you know, right? And we're gonna go out and we're gonna eat at uh, Texas Roadhouse and we're gonna go out and we're gonna eat at, at uh, some other high-end place and what do you know about that? It really doesn't count as food, does it? It counts as entertainment. Going out to eat, spending a lot of money on a meal, really enjoying a sit-down meal. Well, when we look at this principle of what we sow, I think we should actually be looking at it similarly. It's not that entertainment is wrong, but when entertainment dominates our life, it dominates our life. You know, for the first time ever, we have the ability to be entertained anywhere. You know, this winter, we went into a, a local fast food restaurant and we were in there waiting for our order, and we look back, and there's four or five people with their phones out scrolling through things on their phones while we're waiting. There's one person working, and there's one person manning the cash register, and there's lines on both sides. And there's, a, there's just you know a group of people. There was no manager, and so there was a group of people that were just sitting there on their phones, and not even in the back, out in the front, right next to the cash registers. This is what our society has come to. And at some point we actually have to do like we do with the budget and take a look how much time am I spending entertaining myself? Is this entertainment just entertainment or does it have a negative atmosphere? Is it stories that stories or things that drag me down? You know, even when we look at the internet. We we you know, I don't know if you've looked at some of the studies on Facebook but Uh, depression is very uh, common for people who spend a lot of time on Facebook, particularly kids. Why? Because you're reading a made-up story of all the highlights of everybody else's life. You're just looking at the vacations and you're looking at the great pictures and you're looking at the friendships. You're not actually looking at the work that they have to do and at their home life and at the, right? Right? You're just getting the highlights. And so you start to think, "Oh, my life is so bad. We we hardly ever go on vacation. We hardly ever do all these things." You don't realize the blessings you have just having three square meals a day. But that's just one example of how the internet can, you know, not even in a in a somewhat neutral situation, can pull our attitude down and and cause us to be discontent with life. Add to that the you know the problems with the teenage years of looking to members of the opposite sex, things that are on there that aren't profitable at all, books that are written that aren't profitable at all. Let's just I mean the the list gets endless of all the junk that can come into our lives. All of this are things that we have to be careful of because we shouldn't be deceived. What we sow is what we are going to reap. Where are you sowing? If you had to do a budget of your time, are you redeeming the time? That's not to say that there isn't a time for relaxation and a time for fun, but are you putting God, you're giving God time in your life? I can remember as a young man making the commitment to read my Bible every day, and I did it more because my parents wanted me to than because I wanted to. And you know how I read my Bible? I'd read my Bible as fast as I could so I could get done with that chapter for the day. You think that helped me? Not a lot. I'm gonna gonna say there was a little help because it did establish a habit, right? And occasionally, a verse would jump off the page. God might have to reach up and slap me with it, but he'd get through to me occasionally. But it had limited value because I wasn't reading it to understand. I wasn't reading it to get to know God. So we look at our time and we ask ourselves, is my time the Lord's? Not just am I going through the the motions for God, but am I really seeking to meet him? Am I seeking to understand him? Am I seeking to grow? You know, if there is a second issue, and this one's not maybe with America, but with the American church, that I saw coming home, it was this, that we have very little discernment within the church. We don't have an understanding of God's word. We really don't. You know, in our day and age, it's considered amazing if somebody reads through their Bible in a year. In past generations, this was pretty much required of people. And pastors would actually come to your house and check on you to see if you're reading, if you're teaching your kids, how your family devotions are going. I don't know if any of you have ever read 1600s, 1700s, 1800 literature. But, you know, like the, uh, the daily reading pro- program of Robert Murray McShane. You read two chapters privately, one in the morning and one in the evening. You had two chapters you read with your family, one in the morning, one in the evening. The whole church did it together. Why? So when the pastor visited, he could quiz your kids He could catechize your kids on what chapters they had read. No matter what week it was, he could show up and say, have you read your Bible today? Okay, let's talk about John 13. How much do you remember about it? Where where did it take place? Oh, the upper room. And uh, what did Christ talk about first? You know, that was the youngest child's question. The next child, what did Christ talk about first? Oh, having loved them, he loved them to the end. Oh, that's really good. But the idea was is that it was a continual planting of the word of God. Because just like in Africa, nobody comes to the Lord until they've built up this understanding that they're accountable before God, that there is a knowledge of who God is. There's a knowledge of his holiness. There's a knowledge of how sinful sin is. I don't know if any of you remembered, but a couple of weeks ago, a month and a half ago, I read a quote on sin And I had four people, I think, come up and ask me for the quote. And I don't have it written down where I can give it out today, but it was from one of the Puritans. They talked about how sinful is sin. How sinful is sin? You know, we, we call it a white lie. But how sinful is sin? Well, sin is so sinful that one sin condemned Satan and pulled out a third of the angels from heaven. One sin was enough to condemn Eve, And Adam and the entire human race fell into sin. One sin is greater than all of hell because hell, in all of its eternity, will never pay for a single sin. The punishment is ongoing. One sin is greater than Satan because it was by sin that Satan fell. And he had a whole list as it went through these things, thinking on sin. We don't like to think about sin but there's a reason. It's because we struggle with it and we know we struggle with it. The Puritans looked at it and they said, you know, we must evaluate it truly first, understand it. And they saw the sinfulness of sin and it was hard. But also that, that brought them to the correct understanding of how great our salvation is, that it could pay for sin. It costs the Son of God his life and the shedding of his blood to pay for that same sin. Only that can wash away sins. So we have this principle in our life of where are we sowing to? And where are we reaping? And God gives us the warning that he who sows to the flesh will reap what? Corruption. It doesn't matter what amount of science we believe in, how much education we have. I mean right now we we tend to think, well, you know, we have good doctors and medicine so we don't have to worry about venereal disease and we can do all these things and we can we can and we've just got this whole list of things that we can do because we have knowledge. Yeah, exactly. It's corruption and it just keeps growing and it keeps invading and it keeps destroying lives. You go out now and it's the number of kids that have a mother and a dad from a single marriage in the public school, I think is under 25%, somewhere around 22%. That's how rare it is to have a married couple committed to one another for life. It doesn't happen. And that's because the corruption that we've allowed, we've sown to the flesh, and the flesh has brought corruption and it's broken down the family till we have no family. And there's another promise there in that as well. He who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. This is not an idea of work salvation where I I do all these good works and I'm saved. No, that's, that's the opposite of this. But it talks about as God gives us a heart and a desire for Him when we're saved... That's part of salvation. When we're sealed with the Spirit, we have new desires and a new heart, and the battle starts at salvation. And as we follow the Lord, as we seek to, uh, to sow with the Lord, we are going to reap everlasting life. And it tells us, I think it goes further than that, in verse 9, it says, "'Let us not grow weary in well-doing, "'for in due season we shall reap "'if we do not lose heart.'" You see, just like I I think the analogy here is perfect. You have a farmer who sows, and he gets up in the spring when the snow is still on the ground and he makes his plans. He starts to get all the manure together and he starts to make sure it's composted right. And as the snow is leaving, he's breaking up the ground an early plow. And he might be pulling stumps and getting rocks out and anything that came up over the winter. And then as the ground warms up and the sun starts to go in, he, he does a finished plow. He goes through it again, and this time it's a, it's a fine plow. Now he starts to plant the seed. And for the entire summer, he is out there checking that crop on a regular basis. Does it need water? Does it need fertilizer? Does it need <clears throat> some sort of medicine? Is there a bug, a pestilence that has gotten into my crop? And he has planned out everything that is needed for this area of ground to grow this crop. And he waits and he continues. And at the end of the time, there is a harvest that comes, is there not? One of the problems we have in today's church is believing this principle enough to say we will do it God's way and we will do it right. We will cultivate the ground. We will pour out the word on souls. And we will wait for the Lord to work. Instead, we do it with man's ideas. We say, okay, well, we need to to please men and we need to do all these things. And instead of seeking godly men and to disciple men, we just seek to please people. We, We actually pander to the flesh. And the result is corruption even in the church. A lifeless church. They have the 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 name that they are alive, but inside they're dead. I remember talking to a, at a Bible college over in Wyoming, and there was a well known large church there, represented by several of the students, and uh, we were talking about salvation, and the students were really struggling with salvation. Some of the verses. And I talked to the professor afterwards, and I said, you know, and I wasn't teaching. I was just sitting in on the class. I was there for a while. It was my daughter was looking for a church or a college at the time. And uh, I came up and talked to the professor afterwards, and he said, you know, this is very common from our large churches. They have never understood the Bible enough to know what they believe. They've never, you think about that statement, they've never understood the Bible enough to know what they believe, to be able to prove it biblically. Instead, they're just doing things that please people. And yes, the church grows in numbers, but it doesn't grow in depth, it doesn't grow in understanding. And so we have these young people that come to a Bible college thinking they wanna study God's word, and they come to salvation, and they find out they're not even saved. Or if they are saved, they don't even know the first bits about it. What you plant is what you're going to reap. We have planted to the flesh, and we will reap corruption. We will reap the destruction of our future generations. But when you plant to the Spirit, you reap life everlasting. When you lead your kids and your family in the Word of God, when you lead the church in the Word of God, there is promise here that we will reap. It's not quick It says, let us not grow weary in doing good. Why? Oh, any of you ever tried to reach out to the neighbor that nobody likes? Any of you ever reached out to somebody that, you know, you you get your feet stomped on a lot. Forget about having your toes walked on. They kick you. It's not easy. But you continue to reach out. You continue to show the love of Christ. Maybe you're not always talking about the Bible. I'm not talking about just evangelism, but I'm talking about reaching out to help someone who's in need, making opportunities, use of the opportunities God gives you. And what does it say? You will reap if you do not lose heart. You will will see those people starting to change, starting to come, starting to ask questions if you do not lose heart. What a promise. I have seen it in Kenya. We went from, I think it was around 30 individuals that claimed that they knew the Lord and invited us to plant a church among them within the Maasai people. Only two of those actually stayed with the church. Most of them left when we dealt with the first man who was having an affair outside of his marriage. Most of them left. Most of them did not want to leave their sin. They wanted God plus their sin. Actually, they wanted their sin plus God. Their sin came first. Only two of the one married lady and one widow lady have stayed with the whole church. But now that church has had several families that have come in to know the Lord, and they've had other wives from husbands that have multiple wives that have come in, come to know the Lord. And they've had real repentance. We had an old pastor that came, and he did the baptism for one of our baptisms. We had two families that were being baptized, husband and wives, that had come to know the Lord. We'd been discipling them up in our house. And the last, we, we discipled them there for almost a year before we'd let them be baptized. We wanted to know that there was truth and consistency in their life. You can argue about it, but that's, that was the policy. And uh, the last lesson I had with them, I invited the two men up and their wives. And we sat down, we had a bowl of popcorn, and we were sitting in the evening talking. I said, you know, this is an exciting time. I said, not because you're gonna get a certificate. So that's got nothing to do with it. So this is gonna be an exciting time because you will have an opportunity to stand in front of your friends. I said, I want you to call everyone you know that you wanna know the Lord And I want you to tell them what this means when you go down in the water and when you get up. Those two men stood up. They called their families, their friends, their unsaved relatives. They butchered cows. You know, to buy a cow was six months' wages. They butchered cows. They bought flour. They bought things so that they could throw a feast they brought all their friends in and they stood up and they said, you know me, you know the sin that's been in my life. And they started naming sins. The one that he slept around and that he's been in everybody's house, the other one that he was a drunk and that every, he, he, he could look out and he could say, you know, I was drunk with you and I was drunk with you. And he went on, and went right around the circle. And he says, this is my testimony that I'm done with this life. It's over. I've given my life to the Lord, and as I am laid down in the water, it's a symbol that I have died, and they have buried this old fleshly body with all of its appetites and lusts. And when it's raised back up, it's going to be because from here on out, I'm living for the Lord. That old pastor had tears running down his cheeks. I did too. Most of us did. You see, if you're not weary and you keep planting, you will see the fruit in your life and in the lives of those you love. But it has to, you have to go back and you have to say, what am I planting? Am I planting to please myself, to have an easy life, to entertain myself? Or am I really redeeming the time for the Lord and doing everything for the glory of God? It's not that there can't be entertainment. But where is the majority of our funds going? You know, is this like the budget where we we look at all that food budget and we realize that 40% of it is going to entertainment instead of really food? (laughs) Oh, what a tragedy it would be if we stood in front of the Lord and we had not seen any fruit. What a tragedy it is when we don't see fruit within our own families. We need the Lord and we need to be planting and we need to be discipling. We need to be sowing seed for eternity. Let's stand as we close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much. Lord, for the principles you've laid down in your word, for the encouragement and the warnings that are there. Lord, you warn us about what we plant. You rebuke us, Lord, that it will bring forth corruption. And Father, you encourage us to plant good seed. And you you give us the promise, Lord, that if we do, we will reap in due time. And Father, we come to you today. And Lord, for each person that's here, I ask you, Lord, open our eyes that we would evaluate our life truly And, Father, that in this life we would plant seed that would bring glory to you. Father, that we would plant seed that would have eternal fruit, that would be fruit of value. And, Father, that we would plant in such a way that we would bring forth an abundant harvest, not a skimpy one. Father, we ask for this. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.